Please do so. We find ourselves in Exodus chapter 20 at the giving of the law of God. We remind ourselves of the scene every week because God does not just reveal his holiness and his transcendence and his truth through the words that he speaks, though that is primary, but also through the scenery of the day. That at Sinai, there was the booming voice that was coming to people from heaven, that was uh, 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 echoed with the, the heavenly trumpets, that the whole mountain was in a shaking earthquake, that there was flame on the mountain, which was the presence of God, and that the whole mountain was just billowing smoke like a kiln, thick smoke, to, to guard the glory of God from the sight of people. And that the priests were all told to, to strap on a sword and stand as a human barricade between the people and God so that no one would uh, feel invited to come and encroach upon the holy presence of God. And out of that holy picture, God speaks his holy law, which is a binding commandment, not, not just on the Israelites, to them as a national covenant, but in fact in, to every heart, to every person who bears God's image, we have a conscience in our heart. That the law of God is written on our heart, and these ten speak also to the commandments that are on the heart of every person. We find ourselves today, verse 13, very simple command, only two words in the original, but I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, as has been our custom. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Every time that we remember the commandments that God gives to us, we need to remember first that this is in the context of a salvation and a relationship of redemption. We obey not to be redeemed. We obey because we are redeemed. So God reminds them of that. I redeemed you. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, Yahweh, am your God and am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers onto the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all your work, but on the seventh day, a Sabbath to the Lord your God, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner that is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Then Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it whole. I've just read the same line again. You need to hear it twice. It's a Sabbath day. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Verse 13, our commandment today, you shall not murder. May God bless his own word, his law in our midst this morning. 
we see things in this law. We've been reminding ourselves every week, in the law, we see God. Don't ever hate the law. Don't ever gripe against the law. Don't ever despise the law as, as, as Old Testament, as old-fashioned, as a relic from a bygone era and say that now that we're in Christ and now that we're under grace, we don't need that ugly old thing, law. No, the law reveals God. The law is good, holy, righteous, true, and through the law we see God. Therefore, we'll ask ourselves, what does this law reveal to us about God? And the first thing is very simple, but it is in the context of this idea today. The God who commands that we do not take life unrighteously is the God who himself gives life to all things. Paul reminded, this is, this is so foundational, it almost sounds as a truism that we could just easily pass over, but it is something so foundational, maybe it's assumed to you because you think with a Christian worldview. But this is what our day lacks, and maybe if you're a new Christian, you did not come from this background, and this is something rather uh, paradigm shifting, that every sense life and that every ounce of life in this cosmos is intentionally and actively and sovereignly given by God. Paul used this as one of the foundation stones in his apologetic, his worldview evangelism, as Francis Schaeffer says, when he was preaching to the Areopagites, the philosophers, the Greeks, and the Epicureans at, uh, at Mars Hill that day that he preached to them in Athens. And he told them that God gives to us life and breath and all things. That anyone that lives life is living on a debt to God that he graciously, mercifully, and even delightfully gives. God is the source of all life. Well, we do not have a, a, a dualistic, essential being in our universe. In, in other words, we do not have that God is the essence of, of good and light and pleasant, and there is this other equally eternal, equally basic being that gives rise to the evil or to the suffering or to the, or to the difficult or to the... All things come from God, and, a, and, and wherever there is life, everything owes it to Yahweh, only one God. This is the basis of every other commandment. This was pinned down for us in the first commandment. All life is from God, but God gives life to all things. God is a life-giving God. He does not depend on us for life, as other pagan gods do, who require sacrifices and services, and prayers to strengthen him, but rather, we depend entirely every day and every moment, whether we realize it or not, from our very essence to our daily breath and food, we rely on him. All life is from God, and that sets us up for the commandment, because therefore, he is able to determine life can be taken, which life can't be taken, because it's all put out on the table originally, by him. God is the source of all life. Secondly, God values above all other forms of life, human life. God values human life above all other forms of life. This is evident to us in the passage of Genesis chapter 1 where we see God creating all life all animals, all beings, everything that's going to breathe and move and crawl and swim and fly. And he spoke towards the end of Genesis chapter 1 and made the crowning capstone of all creation. He said this, God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. This is essential to our our anthropology. We we need to say this, uh, that that our law has as its foundation our anthropology and our theology. Who God is, what mankind is, always underpins our law, which then underpins our sociology, our ideas of how human beings should enact, like we're learning today from the law, at the very foundation is who is God and who are we? God is the life-giving God. God values human life because human life is, in a sense, the closest thing you have to divine life. If we were to, 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 to ask uh, and try and condition what I said earlier, that, that God uh, qualifies and values rather, he delights in and values human life above all other life, you might say, well, except for his own life. But that would be to even then make a logical con- uh, confusion. The life that God loves in us is in fact a breath of his own life. It is not that humans discovered by him in the cosmic goo or or found in the divine catalog and he saw humans on page six and said, wow, I need one of those. Let's make one of them. And we came wrapped up from the the divine stalk and he, he unwrapped us and put us on earth and said, my new favorite toy, I love them. No, not that any of you had that theology. But, but some theologians and Christians often speak as if that's the case, that we're so precious in God's eyes because we're just so precious. No, even the love of God that God has to us is in fact kind of just a love of himself. Now you hear that and you get a little bit offended and that's not very, should he really love himself that dearly? Yes, all things, all things, especially the most righteous being God, should love the most righteous and glorious thing being God above everything else. So it is good and it is righteous. In fact, it is necessary that God love himself above all things. So what he did in creating mankind was make us in his image. Therefore, the love that he has for us is a portion of his own love for himself. He sees us He sees rather himself in us as that is how he's made us. He also uh, uh, protects and delights in and values human life because we are his image. To be an image of God, we spoke a little bit about this back in the second commandment. Don't make any images of God. He's already made images of God and we image him just fine or or we don't, do we? But we do a lot better than stones or pictures that we're going to carve. God made images of himself, and they are not to be worshipped, human beings, but they do rightly represent in many ways him. Now, we see this in two ways. It is not merely that humans are made in the image of God. It is probably more theologically accurate to say that humans are the image of God. It's not something that we have which is the image, that if we lost it, we would lose the image of God. It is that our very essence is to be images of God, and that comes in two ways. It is our our nature and also our roles given by God. In our nature, we can point to our morality, our intellect, our creativity, our love for beauty, our uh, our social uh, loving relationship potential in humankind. Uh, All of this points to that which sets us above and beyond the, the rest of the created animal kingdom. In fact, we're not in the animal kingdom. 
I don't know what your, what your state school uh, textbooks told you, but we're not at the top of the animal kingdom. We're not in the animal kingdom. We're in the human kingdom. We're in Christ's kingdom. We're in God's kingdom. We are distinct. God made us in our nature to have the image of God. He also made us in our role to image God. That is that we see here in Genesis 1, not only the very nature that he made us in, male, female, with, with intellect and morality and creativity and love and sociology, but also then he commanded them to create more people through propagation of the species, i.e. marriage and family. He told us to rule the earth and to exercise authority. So, so, that, so that from what we are and also what we do, we are commanded to image God, the Latin is the imago dei. I'm not saying that to impress you. I'm just saying because you might come across that in certain uh, books or arguments and theological works, and that is helpful to know. The imago dei underpins our value. Your value is not based on the wealth that you have, the, the productivity you bring to society, the health that you have, the gender that you have, the, the race that you have, or any other thing. All humans carry the image, or in fact are, the image of God in this world. Therefore, God loves humans in a way that he does not love other animals. The distinction in value is infinite, literally infinite, between every created thing and human life. I've had no shortage of discussions with Christian, these examples, Christian gals, who get frustrated at how many babies that family is having. Look at that. Don't they know we have a resource problem? Don't they know that people are starving in the world? Don't they know that the penguins are losing their habitat? And don't we know that the gecko, there's an endangered species. And at the end of their month, they have support programs, not to help the starving children that they're complaining about, but instead to support the endangered penguins and buffalo and eagles and other things. If you don't see the immediate problem with that, the hypocrisy of that, and the gut-wrenching uh, annoyance of that, you're not thinking in, in alignment with this command. Human beings, the creation of human beings and families, always positive, have at it. But to look at other endangered species and to give to them a higher value than, than we give to, the, to human beings, like if you've got 60 bucks left at the end of your budget, support an orphan, not a penguin. Support a human, not a chimpanzee. I'll, I'll leave that one with you. That was quiet. Uh, maybe there's some repenting to do. <coughs> you, you've been on one too many humanitarian trips to the chimpanzee orphanages in Borneo. I'll let you think about it. <coughs> human beings have the image of God and therefore a value above every other created thing. In, a, in an age where we have a green mindset, which is really just the new paganism it's been called, the, the way we look back on the ancient people and those unreached people groups of the islands and they bow down to rocks and they worship trees and they, they worship the spirits floating through the environment. They're so dumb, they're so ignorant, they're so archaic. And then we go to the museum in our, our highly uh, cultured cities and we see what? We see people worshipping the created things. We see them, we see them uh, praying to Mother Nature and praising her for her design in all of the created things we see around us. 
us. We, we see them sacrificing human need and even human people for the propagation of a, of a rare tree. We see people loving and giving themselves as, or even just ideologically, scientifically, as, as we're told that there really is no more value in a human baby than in a, an endangered eagle egg. There is, there is no more value in a, it didn't Peter, the protection of equal rights for humans and animals, whatever they were called, and, and one of their sayings was, a, a frog is a dog, is a pig, is a boy. This is worldview stuff. If you think that we have all commonly evolved from the commonly ancestor of a single cell organism, a little amoeba, then you are rightly to think that a pig has the equal value to us. It's, it's far distant cousins, of course. The, the apes and the humans are, are, go back far enough, and there is a relationship. And so all we are is really equals that look different. No. Let the Bible form our foundation for worldview and then ethics and then politics. Yes, theology is more foundational than politics and affects your politics, that God has created human beings as his capstone of creation and as those which uniquely bear his image and therefore have his value. We are all created from a common God, exactly. He, he gives to humans the responsibility of caring for our world, exactly. But humans must protect other human life far above every other created thing that is true. So we have this foundation of what it reveals about God. He gives life, he values human life, and then we have to start asking, how do we obey this law? In what ways does God command us to live through this law? It's only two words, no murder in the original Hebrew. It doesn't say no killing. And our English differences of those words, murder, and killing carry the same idea as the, as the Hebrew words for the same things. There is a Hebrew word for murder, unrighteous taking of life, and the word for killing. That is the ending of human life in different circumstances. Killing is actually not being outright prohibited in this law. For example, in this very book, Exodus, it's already been applied back in Exodus chapter 19. Kill people who come and try and touch the holy mountain punishment later on in Exodus applied for all sorts of things, uh, including the dishonoring of family, blasphemy against God, uh, a rape, all these kinds of things. God commands the death penalty, and we see this reiterated in Romans 13 uh, in, in the New Testament, that Paul says God gives to civil magistrates, just as he, he told Noah back in Genesis 9, he gives to civil magistrates, he says, the sword, the ideological sword, which is given to him to inflict justice and retribution upon the evildoer and to protect the righteous. God knows, that in, sorry, God has said that though he commands against murder, this is not the same as commanding against all forms of capital punishment. That doesn't mean all forms are righteous. That doesn't mean that needs to be the next thing we enact in our society. But capital punishment was allowed. Also lawful war which we have seen in the book of Exodus already and we will see in the future and, and all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, we see that God acknowledges that there are times where it is necessary for people to either enact or defensively set up war and in war uh, with, with other willing soldiers. It is, a, it is okay and it is not a breaking of this law to kill. We also see Jesus in, in his discussion with the centurion 
or with John the Baptist who spoke to the soldiers, or or with uh, Cornelius who was converted under Peter's preaching. At no point was repentance commanded to these men, and don't ever try and think, well, it's because Jesus and John the Baptist and Peter were afraid of getting killed. Not something you can uh, 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 square against them. That mud won't stick. Jesus, John the Baptist, Peter, all of them preaching to soldiers, and not at any point did repentance demand that they quit their job and leave the army. Even the Roman army. It is possible that Christians can be soldiers, do the act of killing, and not be committing a crime against God's law here in the sixth commandment. Or, of course, self-defense, also outlined for us in Exodus 22. Self-defense, if necessary, as it, as it uh, uh, leads towards the death of the aggressor, that is not the breaking. If it was unavoidable, it's not the breaking of the sixth commandment. Here's what is the breaking of the sixth commandment. Murder. Genesis 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. That's capital punishment. For God made man in his own image. The Old Testament law recognized that God has made man. Therefore, to take the life of man is to take something you didn't own and is to take something that you cannot replace or pay back. Therefore, the punishment of it was, if you take the life of man, you must give your own human life in its payment, that is, the capital. God underpinned this law, and and the the Old Testament law uh, outlines that that this sixth commandment applies to intentional planned murder, what we might call murder in the first degree, planned, premeditated, sought-after murder. It also prohibited intentional murder in a rage, what what, what our law might call uh, 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 intentional manslaughter. That in a rage, in the moment, there is a striking, there's a stabbing, a shooting, a killing of some kind, and there is death. It also prohibited unintentional killing. The law of God stretched this out, as it would do with laws, to also apply to negligence or carelessness or accidental killing of people in fights or in careless care of animals that would lead to human death. Any kind of taking of innocent life by intention or by negligence that was avoidable would be counted as a breaking of the sixth commandment. So, so the first one is murder. We can also say careless negligence. Careless negligence is a breaking of the sixth commandment. It does not honor human life all that it is if we are negligent and careless with other people or our own life. That could be reckless driving. That could be the use of of devices while we're doing our work with heavy machinery or or going to work in a dangerous way, uh, sorry, in dangerous jobs under the influence of alcohol or drugs, nursing, surgery, heavy machinery. Careless negligence in our day could look like scientific research, medical study, or, or unsafe work environments that are not putting in the right precautions for human life. And, and rather just, just throwing it in the scales and seeing how we go. Oh, there's another person dead in the mine. Send in another one. We've got, we've got the poor that are just desperate to send $4 home to their children this week. Let's, how often we see people in underdeveloped nations taken advantage of by bigger corporations in this way. <clears throat> 
unmindful parenting, leaving children in unsafe places, unwatched or around unsafe uh, 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 fluids or poisons. We must be those who are carefully attentive to defend, protect, and uphold human life. This one also, this third application of the, the law of God, do not murder, also applies to suicide. That self-murder is still murder. It is still the taking of life that does not belong to us. You might hear in this commandment of do not murder, do not murder other people because you own your own life, you don't own theirs. That's not the law. We've been saying from the beginning of this exposition, the life that they have is not your life or their life. It is God's life, and so is yours. That could stretch to not suicide, but self-harm through cutting or binge drinking or medicinal abuses. There's much to be said to a struggling person in a pastoral situation, but sometimes the law is this blinding light, this shock to the system that reminds you, I don't have the freedom to do this. I'm sure that the sixth commandment is not enough to, to wake you up and never let you have suicidal tendencies again. I know that may not be the case, but the law can at least shock you and remind you you don't have a freedom for that. That's not an option for you as a Christian. Whatever God's will is for you, Self-harm or suicide is not his option for you. Suicide is still murder even when it is assisted by a doctor. In our day, we don't call it suicide, of course. We call it euthanasia, which, which means EU is the, the, the prefix meaning good. Eulogy is a good word. Uh, a euphemism is a good way of saying something. Euthanasia is a euphemism for death. Good, thanos, death. Good death, a good way to die, a lawful God-honoring way to murder yourself and break the sixth commandment does not exist. In 2023, January, just six months ago, Queensland brought into its uh, legislature a bill that allows for euthanasia, and legally, it does not count as suicide if the doctor helps you do it. They, they defend you and say, you, your insurance, your family, your will will not be undercut. If there is suicide clauses, those don't apply because we have a new bill that just throws the smoke around a little bit and confuses the principles. There is no such thing as good murder. What euthanasia tries to do is say, there's a way to be victorious over death. There's a way to be freed from its suffering clutches and enter death on your own victorious terms. That doesn't exist outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only way that death becomes good, the only way that death becomes a friend, the only way that death becomes entered into with the willingness of soul is if you know that on the other side of that death there remains and stands a Savior Jesus who is willingly accepting you and freeing you from the bondage and the clutches of death. Euthanasia doesn't exist. This, this means that for ourselves, if, if we go into times of sickness or difficulty, this means that for us, if we work in the medical field, this means for us, if we have loved ones that are suffering, and often it's the case in old age and terminal, we do not lean on what our society normalizes, but which the law of God commands against, which is the ending of life prematurely because they're going to die anyway. The euthanasia bill that brought into Queensland means that of any age older than 18, 
if you have a terminal diagnosis and you're probably, at least as the doctors think, you're probably going to die within 12 months, you can request to be killed early. It saves a bed. I guess it saves insurance money. I don't want to see where this ends up going down the track, that maybe Medicare just stops paying for your treatment because of their opinion they think you would be better off and cheaper to just die. I wonder if our health insurance is going to stop paying for expensive treatments when over 50% of the people in this sort of situation usually opt to die anyway. You're being, un, un, you're being very selfish with resources. I wonder when that decision is actually going to be taken out of your hands because the experts know a lot better and you're a science denier if you don't want to die and therefore the decision is made by experts that this will end in death. We may as well usher in your death early and free of suffering. And our, our society is going crazy because in denying God, in worshipping ourselves, it, it, the, the bill says this, the euthanasia bill says this, the most important thing, life is precious, it says, but the most important thing is the human autonomy in decision making. Wrong. The most important thing is not even the human life. The most important thing is God's truth, is God's law, and it demands that we don't take our own life. It is true that we've been given a sense of autonomy, not an autonomy to overturn God's law and then put it into our own law saying that it's good. That is a breaking of the sixth commandment. Self-murder is murder in the last year of your life. Self-murder is murder if it is assisted by a medical professional. We also have this in our culture. We need to hear this. Abortion is murder. In fact, it is the murder of the smallest member of our society. It is the murder of the most vulnerable members of our family. It is the murder in the most sacred and safe place that a baby could ever be, which is in the womb, the warmest embrace of a mother as designed by God. Whether this happens by medicine that the mother takes, injection of a lethal fluid into the mother's womb, which kills the baby who is then passed, or through the surgical cutting of the neck and limbs, then vacuumed out and thrown into waste bins. In 2018, Queensland, we're just doing great. The Queensland uh, legislature brought in the abortion law, which allows abortion for any reason if the mother believes that she will be mentally unable to do it. Uh, mental suffering counts as danger now. If she believes that and two doctors are able to sign a form, either they email it to each other or she actually sees two different doctors or sees one nurse but is signed off by two different doctors, it doesn't matter. She feels that that is her case or is pressured by boyfriends to do so. I've been there outside of the abortion clinic preaching the gospel and seeing fathers drag their daughters into the room, Christians so-called, came and told me that the church that they were at, their pastor says that this is okay. That's why this needs to be said here, not just, not just out at the culture, not just in a street sermon or on the social, but to the people of God. Abortion is not the option for an unwanted pregnancy. I will say this, being pregnant out of wedlock is not a sin. Getting pregnant out of wedlock, doing the deed that brings you to pregnancy out of wedlock is the sin. But it is not even in your control, nor a sin against you, if within you a seed finds an egg and creates a human being. God did not make Mary sin by giving her a baby in her womb before she was married. 
being, and I'm talking to the parents here and the gals, if in your family there is a teenage, a young, an unwanted pregnancy, never think that the religious people around you would rather you go and secretly kill your grandchild than bring your daughter pregnant to church. There will be no judgment for that. There will be judgment from God on those who judge that girl for not killing their child and who encourage that kind of behavior. God loves babies, so should we. So even though that kind of behavior, coercing boyfriends, literally shoving their girls in through the door before they take a swing at me, I've been there. Men who drag in their daughters, who coerce, all of that is supposed to be legal. Nothing, none of that is being stopped. My heart goes out to the young people of today. But though our law makes room for it, it is in fact still murder. Life begins at conception, not implantation, but conception. As soon as the egg is met with the seed, there is a new, original, designed by God DNA set, and though that be one cell, that is a one-cell human being. And that human being, that, I mean, that's just biology. Life begins at conception, that's biology. Human life from conception has the value of God upon it, that's theology. We need both. Don't you know that the science experts say it just does not cut it in morals and ethics anymore? We've learned that, haven't we? I would like to think we've learned that. At least the people of God might have learned that. The world hasn't learned that yet. They bank everything on science, twist it to say what they want, but God's law stands. Abortion is murder. The size of the human does not determine value. The development of a human does not determine their personhood. An infant is not less human than a fully grown male. The level of dependence of that person does not determine their personhood. But they're so dependent on the mother. Without her, they die. So would most two, three, four-year-olds. So would most teenage boys. Just not an argument against their personhood. Dependence is how God's designed humanity. It's not an exception. Their environment, oh, well, they're inside the womb. They're not outside. That does not determine personhood. Their poverty, oh, oh, but if they're born into this family, how they'll suffer? Probably less than if you cut their neck open. Oh, but, but they're going to have a disability and they'll be a, be a burden on society. Is that how we're going to start measuring who gets to live and die in our society now? None of these things determine humanness or personhood. Kevin DeYoung says this, every human life is precious. Unborn life is precious. Children with special needs are precious. Aging parents are precious, even when they don't remember because they're suffering dementia. They're still made in the image of God. Nonverbal children or parents, those in a wheelchair, those who are completely dependent upon others or doctors are precious. All of life matters to God. Amen, somebody. Our world hates that mindset. We will stand firm on it being true till we die. We might also say this as a pastoral warning, that there are many so-called safe birth control tablets, medicines, when taken, that actually have a backup, abortifacent mechanism, meaning that it will say on the package, it stops you getting pregnant. The actual pharmacokinetics in the background is that if you do get pregnant, and a seed does get through and, and, and fertilize the egg, that before it can be implanted, it will kill that and flush it out and make the, the wound 
inhospitable. That is to say, it's a very sneaky medicinal abortion for many, many birth control tablets. It's a careful thing that Christians, if we take this law seriously, need to consider, am I on something? I need to ask my doctor. I need to do my own research and find out if something that we're on might be in a behind-the-scenes way breaking the sixth commandment. Or fifth, murder of the heart and word. This is what Jesus says. As, as he speaks of the sixth commandment, we've said of, of murder, of, of negligence, uh, suicide, abortion, also murder of the heart and words. Jesus exposits this, uh, this commandment. He, he, in his uh, uh, ministry, he exposes what it always meant. He shines a more direct light onto what the, word, law, the law of God was, and he points people at it saying, you were misunderstanding this for much of the time if you were making light of this law. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard it said that it was, no, sorry, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, Jesus is not backing off that. He's not saying it was wrong. He's not changing it. He's just interpreting it for people who had had it reinterpreted by seminarians. He says, here's what it really means. To you I say that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And so we go back and we check the Greek. Is that, that, he probably said something. There's probably a textual variant here. And it's meant to say if you're angry and it's not your fault, then it's liable to judgment. He can't really mean that if we're seething with anger for a very good reason, at least as far as I care, and I'm sitting in that anger and I'm tolerating that anger and I'm, and I'm soaking in that, that can't be murder. I didn't kill him, but I wanted to. Oh, did that slip out? Jesus looks at our heart and says, if we are tolerating and, and even enjoying, I think we enjoy this. We say we hate it. We say we hate bitterness, but we're sitting in it like a tub of a, of a bath with the, with the bubbles going in a spa, and we're enjoying the, the imaginations of their downfall, the, the, the what we would do to them if we had them alone. Hatred in our heart is a secret confession that if I was able to get away with it, they would be dead. That's what hatred is. Hatred is a secret confession that I would murder them given the opportunity. And if you disagree, then you disagree with Jesus. It's murder of the heart that leads to murder of the body and life. But he goes further. That's the heart. Bitterness. But then he goes further into the words and says, Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. What he's saying is that before we strike with the hand, we strike with the words. Before we hate and snuff out their life, we hate and we snuff out their reputation. The, the Puritans applied this and said, it is a breaking of the sixth commandment to slander people, to ruin and kill their reputation and their good name. So that even though we can't kill them, we can kill other people's thoughts of them and often mud sticks. It is, it is impossible nearly to, to gurney off the mud that slanders can stick to somebody. Lying about them, slandering, uh, perjury in court, the destruction of somebody's reputation behind their back, name smearing is a form of murder with our words. I would say there's six. What does this law command to us? This law commands if we would not despise and devalue human life, but we would uphold and honor human life, 
It demands then that we be preachers of the gospel. There is not much that you can do to withhold death from your neighbors. It's coming. The curse is upon their body. But there is something you can do to withhold the death of death from their soul. You can help and and do what you may to undo the curse of the judgment that is against them by speaking of the God. This is the way that though their body dies of whatever reason, and, and though we will be good physical neighbors as well, let us speak the gospel. If we value human life for God's sake, if we value the, the image of God that in people's souls, then we will speak to them the life-giving, soul-forgiving good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we might see them held back from the death of hell. Evangelism, being a church that reaches out, that speaks the gospel. I, I know we can't be a church, or I know that we will not be a church that commits soul murder in the preaching of a false gospel. I know we won't do that. I will stand firm and not let that happen. But we could be a church that sees many die by our negligence. Will we be held account? Will we be asked on our judgment day from Jesus, the King of Kings, what did you do? Look at these people that I, that I put across your life and, and put across your family and your, your neighborhood that could have been saved from your perspective had you but spoken, but we held back. This would be a negligence of the value of human life. But Jesus gives to us better news than all of the condemnation that those laws bring. Maybe you have had an abortion, hated people, let, driven your girlfriend or your daughter to have an abortion. You've despised other people. You've slandered through negligence. You've seen people die under your watch. I, I don't know what it might be, but every single one of us, to some degree, breaks this law to the degree that we deserve judgment. As In Jesus' words, we are liable to the hell of fire. And yet Jesus in his earthly ministry, Jesus in his earthly ministry does that which frees us from the guilt of blood murder, of blood guilt. In the, in the Old Testament especially, we see it in the story of Cain and Abel. When, when righteous Abel is murdered, God says that the blood of your righteous brother is calling out to me from the ground. This becomes a motif in the Old Testament. That in a nation or a state or a community where, where the innocent are being killed, where the children are being slaughtered in abortion, where the elderly are being tipped off, where life is not held, where righteousness and justice is not enacted, God says, I can hear the blood of the righteous, innocent, dead people calling out to me. Do you want to know what it says? It says, avenge us. It says, bring down judgment on those who judged the righteous, who killed the innocent. Pour out your wrath on those who poured out their wrath on us unrighteously. Now imagine the guilt on the human race that God himself steps into mortal human frame and then we murder him. Can you imagine what the Bible would say to us of the blood of righteous Jesus crying out against us? How guilty we are for that murder. How, how liable to judgment we are for that one perfect man being the, the truly righteous one. And yet Hebrews 12 tells us that the blood of Jesus does truly cry out. But it cries out a better word than the blood of Abel. It cries out rather than saying, inflict the law, avenge us, pour out vengeance. The blood of Jesus cries out, Father, I have drunk their vengeance. Father, I have absorbed your wrath. 
Father, I have absorbed all of your anger against their rightful sins. So, so even as a victim of murder, Jesus is able to save murderers. Even as the, as the one in, uh, who is victimized by our sin, he is able to free us from the condemnation of our sin because it was much more than merely a human victim of political crimes and murder. He was he who was put forward from heaven as a representative suffering who died in our place, absorbed God's wrath, and by God's truth, he was raised again. Sunday, to stand firm and stand in heaven with arms open and tell the whole world through his church, anybody who believes in me, regardless of the murderous heart you have, regardless of the murderous words you've spoken, regardless of the murder that you've committed with your filthy, bloody hands, you can be forgiven and washed clean by Jesus' blood if you would just trust him to do so. Let's pray. Father God, you are a life-giving God. You are a powerful God that loves us and commands us to love others. And we know that each one of us has been guilty in this way. And we are in a generation of an unclean mindset and, and, uh, and ungodly, unbiblical ideologies. And I ask that you preserve us and purify us from the way that the culture's thinking might leak into our thinking about human life about dignity, about death, and the value that every human has. Father God, give to us responsibility for our neighbors, love for our brothers and sisters, the protection and flourishing of human life in our midst. Thank you for babies. Thank you for every life that sits here, disabled, less abled, elderly, young, height of health. Father God, we thank you for the gift of human life. But we pray that you would give spiritual life to some today to those who are far off from you, who reject your word up till now, who know themselves to be sinners, would you give them faith in Jesus to the glory of your son, that your name might be known in all the earth. Father God, we thank you for your word and your law and your grace and your son. We pray all of this in his name. And everybody said, amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.